On this episode, Kirk dies, Guinan lies, we cram in too many enterprises, and a bunch of old men practice a little bit of the old ultraviolence. I'm Captain Awesome. I'm the Dribble Hippie. Take your station, grab onto something. There are no seatbelts on the bridge. Today we're going to be discussing Star Trek Seven Generations, <laughs> uh, released uh, November fourth, nineteen ninety four. This was uh, the the first attempt at bringing a next gen movie to market, and it was kind of a I don't know a changing of the guards, as it were. All you people who loved the uh, the Spider Man um, movie, where we got to see all the different Spider Mans. This is where that all starts. This was done decades before we can actually bring different people from different movies in the same franchise and put them in the same movie. So you're welcome. (laughs) So are are you saying this is the start of the multiverse madness right there? (laughs) This is the first time we get a glimpse at it, at least in Uh, movies. This is the start of a lot of insanity, actually. Uh, It was the first Trek film to have its own promo website. That's kind of weird. That was Um, weird. I mean, it's 1994. Websites are basically, you know, flashing GIFs on, <laughs> <laughs> on uh, Netscape Navigator, yes. right? And this one actually had pictures on it. It was crazy. <laughs> I have um, to say, when, when you talked about doing this episode, I was really, really, I was really nervous about it. I was anxious about it because you, you've watched Mystery Science Theater. Oh yeah. You've seen there have been movies that are just so slow and so bland that not even the bots can find zingers to throw at them. And I was very afraid when I went, I watched the, through this movie the first time that there's, I, boy, it was a challenge. I was really glad when you stepped up on this one. Well, I mean, let, let's be honest, this movie, it is definitely, it's, it's milk, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's, it's not exactly a, a laugh a minute or a a crazy action flick or anything. There's a lot of like, uh, I, I see what you did there. Yeah. Okay. And that's about it. The really sad Um, thing is, is that if it were just a movie that they rushed out, say like Star Trek five, you might understand a little bit, but this movie was in development for two years. The story was written over two years by Ronald Moore as one of the writers, one of my favorite television writers of all time. And uh, it just seemed there should have been a little bit more. Yeah. I have to admit, if, if we're thinking about the MST three K scenario, I think uh, Star Trek five is definitely their Mitchell. He's so sweaty. He's going to slide off that car. Anyway, (laughs) Uh, I, I first saw this movie when I was 16 years old uh, in that beautiful year of 1994. I had a girlfriend and I was planning on taking her to it. And she was like, no, that's a nerd movie. I'm not going to see it. Um, So I took my buddy instead. Um, I was really, really looking forward to this movie. I was, let's be honest, I'm, I'm a huge TNG fan. That, that's, that's my bag. What can I say? So I was super duper excited about this. Uh, I will admit I was uh, super excited about this as well. In fact, I, uh, I called out from work and uh, skipped a couple of classes to go to the first morning showing um, on Friday. 
because I thought, well, the Thursday midnight showing is going to be insane. I'm not even going to try that. Um, I'm going to go first thing on Friday, first showing in the morning. It was at 1030 in the morning. I thought nobody's going to be there. It was completely wrong. <laughs> um, I got there early. I got a seat and every seat in the house was filled within 10 minutes. Yeah, I I saw it at like 10 o'clock. <clears throat> Excuse me. I saw it at like 10 o'clock at night and uh, it was still pretty packed. <laughs> so there was a there was a lot of anticipation for this because this is just months after the television show goes off the air. This isn't a uh, situation where we've gone a couple of years where we haven't seen anything. This is literally going right from television to the movies. Um, and this is another, I'll have to look it up, but this wasn't a common occurrence. I mean, I know, again, for our younger listeners, we see a lot of properties go through their whole uh, uh, television sequence and then when they're when they cut off the end then we throw a movie or two at the end uh sex in the city possibly mm-hmm. someday community yes and, community uh, that would be a perfect <laughs> use case for this scenario um so this was a bit unique this was not something that uh, i mean the original series had done it so we, we had that and they followed through but this wasn't something that you saw a lot no it was pretty unusual i mean uh, it's it's not unusual for the franchise because let's be honest, we were all really just beating anybody we could over the head. Please make this movie. Please make this movie. Um, but it, it was kind of unusual and it's been, it was almost six months to the day uh, from the end of the series that they uh, released the episode, at least from one of the accounts I was reading. Um, but interestingly, they were also in the third season of DS nine at the same time. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, there's still a good amount of Trek on TV. It's not out of everybody's mind yet. Um, that said, unfortunately, DS9 really wasn't getting the viewers at the time, uh, mostly because of uh, you know bad programming spots more than anything else. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it wasn't completely out of sight and out of mind. But it it was kind of weird that it, that that long after the series had been over, they were like, oh, let's go ahead and give it a try. Yeah, and and uh, they'd actually gotten the contract for two pictures um, two years before the series ended. So they knew as they wrote the last couple of uh, seasons. Um, in fact, they they wrote the final episode, the finale to Next Generation. Um, um, all good things. Um, the story for All Good Things and the story for this one were written like side by side. And Ronald Moore said it was actually kind of a toss-up, which which was going to be which. Oh, see, I read it different. Uh, I read uh, Rick Berman was like, no, All Good Things is actually the better script. <laughs> <laughs> which Ronald Moore at the end said, yeah, it was the much stronger story. Um, yeah. And uh, he just thought it was kind of odd that uh, that they got reversed because he thought the stronger story was going to be the, the film um, and uh, did not end up that way. Oh, man, All Good Things would have made an amazing movie. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, although I think that all good things did much better because of the fact that they had all the lights on the whole time, unlike <laughs> on, on, on this movie. So um, for Star Trek geekdom, we'll go ahead and just set this in the timeline. Um, the Kirk segment of this movie, the very opening segment, um, which is the so-called Kirk uh, death of Kirk, that occurs in twenty-two ninety-three. Um, the same year as Undiscovered Country. So Kirk hasn't been in retirement that long. Um, he just, They just dis- decommissioned the last Enterprise at the end of Star Trek VI. 
this is the brand new enterprise that we're seeing. So it was less than a year before uh, there was a new enterprise uh, in Starfleet. So this will be 20 years after the motion picture, the, the Kirk series or the Kirk sequence. When we get to the next generation segment, this is in the year 2371. This is four years after Picard was taken by the Borg. Um, so four years after Wolf 359. It was one year after the last episode of uh, Next Generation. So it's uh, in timeline wise, it's the next year after all good things. And at this point, Voyager has not been lost yet, but it's going to happen in the next couple of months. All right. So this movie is considered to be the eighth installment of the Worf versus Duras, <laughs> uh, which I, so that arc is, is one of my near and dear uh, pieces of, of Star Trek. I, I love the, the, uh, the house of Moog versus the, the house of Duras. It's fantastic. I agree with you. Um, unfortunately though, the only characters they brought back for this one are, <laughs> are uh, the uh, Dura sisters, which are, are not the, the most compelling of the family. <laughs> um, but you, you know, got a shimp on this one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, this is also, uh, th this team up of the old versus new track. Um, one thing I did read is that apparently Gene Roddenberry hated this concept, did not want it ever to be filmed and tried really hard to make sure that the two properties were kept separate. And so much so uh, that this storyline only made it because the writers got a chance to ease up on things once Gene died. They were like, okay, we get to introduce storylines we like. We get to do all kinds of stuff. And we got a movie to do. Let's do that movie where Kirk and Picard <laughs> get to meet. It'll be great. Now, one thing I saw that Ronald Moore uh, uh, also mentioned on this is that the whole uh, uh, Nexus idea was mm -hmm. because Berman did want to pitch this idea, but he told more specifically there can't be time travel in it. Ooh. Kirk can't, can't, uh, or uh, Picard can't go back in time. That can't happen. We can't have time travel as part of the story. You have to find another way for these two to interact without using time travel. Yeah, there was a, a, a different version of this script that I read about. Um, that basically the handover was supposed to happen as part of uh, uh, undiscovered country. Yes. And they were going to basically have at the end of that, have Kirk handed over to Picard and they were like, okay, <laughs> they're ready to write it. And then somebody's like, uh, we're going to say years. <laughs> I was going to say, you understand there's 70 years between these events, yeah. right? Exactly. Uh, we already said what time it was. We can't do that. Um, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of bad stuff about this script. Uh, Nimoy was actually tapped to act and direct the movie. Uh, then he got the script <laughs> and, uh, he, he, he read the script and he was not a fan. Um, so, uh, he, he was quoted as saying that the lines were so bland, anyone could deliver them. There was no point of him even being in the movie. <laughs> And they agreed, so they put all those lines in Scotty's mouth. Um. <laughs> and the same thing kind of hope happened for Chekhov because uh, DeForest Kelly was so ill at this time that they couldn't actually insure him to be on the set. Um, now, I and, just want to point out, the ship's doctor couldn't get <laughs> insurance. <laughs> oh, man. That's because he was an actor, damn it, not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and this is actually the reason why uh, in that opening sequence, when refugees come aboard 
uh, Chekhov takes two of the reporters and said, you two are now nurses. That was actually a uh, Dr. McCoy line that they just gave to Chekhov. Wait, wait, wait. Let me get this straight. So uh, Chekhov was not trained as a medical professional? Just, yeah. Just, okay, we're going to clear that up. Okay. And, and Chekhov also is still wearing a security uniform, which I'm still, I guess I guess that's his track, but I I'm just, was kind of surprised by that. It's his own fault. He let somebody call him Pavel. When he was called <laughs> Chekhov the whole time, nobody had any problems. As soon as somebody started calling him Pavel, it all went down the tubes. Now, so, uh, okay. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say uh, um, that uh, this movie was directed by David Carson, uh, who had some TNG chops. He had, had directed a few of the episodes. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, probably a logical choice for this. Yeah. And it was weird because um, I remember when the movie came out, um, Some this is very early internet geekdom, and a lot of people claim that Carson uh, got the part, bullied his weight on the part because they blamed Carson for uh, the film not being living up to their expectations, which honestly, I think Carson with what he had to work with did a fantastic job. Yeah, it's not um, bad. And one interview that I read, Carson actually comes out and says, no, that wasn't the case at all. I was surprised I got it because I had no movie experience. Um, they basically chose me because I knew the actors, I knew the story, I knew the sets and they wanted the thing on time and under budget. And despite the fact that they had to still add on an extra 5 million to the shooting to shoot the Kirk death scene a second time, he still did both those things. He still got it in on time, got it in under budget, which for any director in Hollywood, that's a feather in your cap. Oh yeah. Well, and I mean, if you think about the TNG crew, I mean, this is, uh, you know, not to disparage everybody on the old series, but uh, the TNG crew, these were, are well known as consummate professionals as far as being on screen. Um, they're, they're all there to do their job, get it done right and get out the door. And they're really good at that. And they've, they proved it for years and years. So bringing that plus a set that hasn't been struck yet and putting it all together and um, basically filming a two hour long episode after you've yeah. already been filming with all these people, it makes a lot of sense. And I believe they started shooting this like four weeks after they uh, they wrapped on All Good Things, mm-hmm. which I imagine that, uh, that Patrick Stewart probably needed the rest for four weeks because just the the scheduling they put him through on All Good Things was pretty pretty hairy. Yeah, well, and even during this, which it'll come up a little bit later, he uh, he was already reading for another part for another movie as well during this. <laughs> so yeah, it's it, the the man was just. <laughs> Wall to wall <laughs> jobs, right? Um, so we start the opening credit sequence with the mysterious music and uh, uh, racing across, uh, panning across the star field, and we kind of see something odd coming up against the uh, the black background. And eventually, we see that this is a bottle of Dom Perignon that is floating through space. Which honestly, I thought re- pretty cool beginning, something that hadn't been done. It was pretty neat. Um, I, I was also kind of tickled by the fact that it, it was uh, late nineties uh, computer animation there. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, actually pretty good even for, for what it was. Um, I, I did notice that uh, the Dom Perignon is from the, the 2200s. Uh, <laughs> that was pretty cool. And, uh, so uh, it, it flies through the air and smashes on uh, the front of a, of a new starship. Okay. Um, which I'm, I'm just going to ask. It breaks and it splashes. 
how much yeah. alcohol is in Dom Perignon that it does not freeze in the absolute zero of space? See, forget about the freezing. It's champagne. <laughs> Think about the last time you just slightly shook a bottle of champagne <laughs> and opened it. Like the amount of of uh, carbonation that's in there, as soon as that thing cracked, it would have exploded like a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> also, I, I really want to know, like, how, how do they get that bottle flying across to hit the, the ship just right? Like, is there some <laughs> guy whose job it is to stand there at a bay and just chuck that sucker? And how many times has he missed? So or is I'm there just, somebody who's got a gun that shoots nothing but champagne bottles? That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that they've got a, a champagne bottle gun, which, you know, <laughs> there's the job I want. Uh, <laughs> or hey, you or, know, we okay. have these uh, t-shirt cannons laying around. I, I have an idea. <laughs> so my rationalization is they have somebody stand, some ceremonial person stand in front of the uh, magnetic force field, just like you have in uh, shuttle bay they huck the bottle through the magnetic field and then somebody subtly takes a uh, tractor beam to it to guide it to exactly where it wants to be. Well, that just seems, well, I guess if you're, if you're doing a big ship now and you put it on a string, so I guess that's kind of the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this. It, it really makes me happy to see how far the Federation has come in starship design because had you thrown that bottle at the original Enterprise and had it hit the way it did, phasers, transporters, and warp would have all gone off of line immediately. So <laughs> it's the faith that they have in these new ships that you can hit it with a bottle and nothing's going to happen. Right. I have to say, you know, fuchsia's well, I mean, good. Scotty is not the the lead engineer on this ship, so <laughs> that's really the only saving grace. <laughs> so it's the the mid nineties. So as as uh, the doors open onto the bridge, uh, Kirk is immediately bathed in paparazzi. <laughs> um, the amount of reporters crammed in there is probably maybe 10, but they've got it filmed just right. So it looks like there's like 20, 30 people <laughs> all in front of them. They're all flashing in his face and it's Kirk and Chekhov and Scotty all together. It's a great scene. Uh, everybody's holding little handheld video games that are supposed to be their recorders. <laughs> but, um, the, the cameramen all have them strapped to their heads, which honestly, if you think about like, uh, some of the AR lenses that people are doing now. And it's not that far <laughs> off if you think about it. No, very true. Right. Um, one thing I read said most of the reporters in this scene were actually uh, doubles and stand-ins for the crew from the TV show. Oh, nice. That's pretty cool. A little, uh, 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 it's kind of like the, uh, the motion picture when they had all the letter writing folks. In. Yes. Yeah. Now, a um, little bit of set trivia on this one. If you look carefully in the background, <clears throat> there is the turbo lift and foyer um, that are exactly the same as what you've seen before. And that's because they are from the original ship in the motion picture. Um, they are going to also make their way onto the Enterprise E in the next movie. I thought this was so cool. It's, it's just one of those surviving set pieces. And we've, we've talked about that piece before where, you know, when the doors open, you can actually see the wrong enterprise on the wall at times. <laughs> um, so it's kind of cool to, to find out that, yeah, in fact, it's going to make it to the next ship as well. And it's actually <laughs> from the original movie. Um, a lot of the rest of the bridge was a redress from the enterprise a in star Trek six. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so again, reusing. And I'm a big fan of the Excelsior class. I really like the ship. I thought it was really, really pretty. Um, and then, oh yeah, I forgot. After the bridge, after they wrap these shots, this bridge will also turn into what's left of the uh, Armagosa Laboratory later on in the movie. Yeah, I read that too. Unfortunately, I read it after I watched the movie. I, I gotta, I need to go back and, and watch and see if I can notice the, uh, <laughs> the the fact that it's actually the bridge. Um, so the they make it onto the bridge, and we find out really quickly that that Kirk is not the captain of this bridge. He or this ship. He is just there as an observer. The actual captain is Captain John Harriman. <laughs> <laughs> where is our captain john harriman series mr kurtzman mr alex <laughs> kurtzman where is it oh my gosh um he he he's just sweating bullets right um it, it's really sad he does not look confident in any way uh this is a um a relatively young alan ruck playing the part he's um kind of sweaty uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, <laughs> I, I just kept waiting for, for uh, Matthew Broderick just to pounce in <laughs> out of the turbo lift. Um, but yeah, <laughs> the last time he took something, he, you know, he took something really nice out. It went really, really hor- horrible in Ferris Bueller. So, well, there, there's no odometer on this ship, so <laughs> I, I don't think he's got to worry too much. How do you how do you put an enterprise up on a, a starship up on blocks? Well, I mean, we, if there's one thing we know, it's a movie with a new enterprise. They they have to drive it in reverse to get it out, right? <laughs> so, so the uh, question is, what what's been Jim? What has Jim been doing with his uh, his retirement? He looks at the chair immediately, and it's like you just you just left a ship. You said you were ready to stand down. Well. He, you really get the I've feeling that Jim Kirk is a guy this. who just really doesn't know what he wants. I think there's two theories about this. One is, um, I mean, he just got done with undiscovered country, right? So he, he hasn't quite gotten it out of his blood. My other theory is that the chair looks a lot more comfy than the horses he's been riding. <laughs> I'm not sure which is true, but you know. <laughs> so then we get into another inconsistency here that's going to happen because people just did not want to be in this movie, um, which is... <laughs> Um, a, a, uh, a young Asian lady stands up and introduces herself and it turns out her last name is Sulu. She is in fact Sulu's daughter. <laughs> because and, the real Sulu was not going to show up. Yeah. So basically George Takei was, was approached to do this movie and he said, well, I would do the movie except in order for it to make any sense, Sulu would have had to take a demotion to be on this bridge. And that sucks. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) So what did they do? They said, Hmm, there's gotta be a way we can avoid a rewrite. We'll just make the Sulu character Sulu's daughter. And then they don't even have to change the name in the script. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Apparently, I mean, this is 94, right? Find and replace is still not super reliable. So (laughs) they had to take a different tack. Uh, Scotty's sitting next to Kirk and he's like, Hey, Hey, how's retirement treating you? Are you, uh, you enjoying it? The look on his face, like, shut up. I'm fine. (laughs) And they resisted. Hey, Spock asked me to ask you this. Spock asked me to ask you that. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So the whole thing is, 
yeah, this is all ceremonial. So this is this is not uh, Jim Kirk's, you know, jam really uh, doing the ceremonial thing. He wants to get out and beat somebody up. Okay, I think that the real reason he's all butthurt about this is his last ship when they were like, "Hey, Kirk, we're not sending you to prison, but we're going to give you a brand new Enterprise." <laughs> there was none of this party. There was none of this pomp and circumstance. There was no reporters. It was just like, uh, yeah. That ship over there behind the junk pile. Yeah, that one. That's that's brand new. <laughs> totally. Now he knows for sure that they gave him a broke down old piece of garbage as his last ship. Yeah. Yeah, it's finally done it on him. He's not the right? most popular guy at Starfleet like he thought. <laughs> <laughs> so the camera sweeps across the room and we see a familiar face. It's our good buddy, Tim Russ. Yeah, he doesn't Tim have Russ. fucking ears. No, no pointy ears. And I remember looking really hard at this the very first time I rented it afterwards to take a look and see, cause I knew he was in it, but <laughs> no, no, it's not Tuvok. It's uh, it's some dude who just looks like him. Well, let's be honest. This isn't his first appearance. He was also a thief on the D. Um, I can't remember the name of the episode. It was when Starship they were uh, mine. Starship mine. Yes. It's when they, uh, they put the, the enterprise in for a toxic cleaning and everybody was supposed to be off the ship and, Kirk, or Kirk, uh, Picard with his saddle on his shoulder <laughs> runs into a thief. The episode that was created off of the conversation. You know what people love? Die Hard? I was just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So after that sweep across the bridge, we look out the front window because now it's time to pull out of the garage. <laughs> because it's a Star Trek movie and we got to spend a couple of minutes just showing the thing, getting out of the garage. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is, but, uh, and I, and the thing is, is it's like, I honestly, it's like the budget is controlled by the model builders and they're like, look, I'm going <laughs> to give you enough budget for a two hour movie, but you're going to give me a solid six minutes of my ship that I just built going out the garage. <laughs> and I'm going to be timing it. It's going to be six minutes. <laughs> <laughs> now I did notice they added a cleft chin to the Excelsior. Uh, if you take a look, there's it's a standard Excelsior, but it's got this big thing stuck on the bottom. Uh, I did do some reading about that and found out that all the extra bits of plastic and stuff that they added to the outside was so that they could do battle damage to this model and still keep the model. <laughs> Which, it's brilliant. I love that. <laughs> if you look through that. Star Trek canon, there are now two versions of the Excelsior. There is the early Excelsior and the later Excelsior, all because... Somebody didn't want to rebuild that model. <laughs> and I don't remember ever seeing a later model Excelsior in Next Generation. I remember seeing, I mean, the hood was an early model Excelsior. Yep. They were all the originals. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. is the only one that looks like this. And I, I, like I said, I found an article on uh, uh, Memory Alpha about the later model of the Excelsior. And it talked about having this extra piece on it, which I thought was kind of funny. You know, if Paramount were to do a 4K re-rendering of Sacrifice of Angels, we could take a look and see if uh, there were any later model uh, uh, in that particular battle. I but, think they should redo this movie and just make the Excelsior right. <laughs> that fixes all the problems. <laughs> that would be, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so they, uh, they pull out of the garage and the camera swings back around. And there's Kirk and his buddies coming off the turbo lift. They apparently, in the time it took to back out of the garage, they toured the entire <laughs> ship. You see one deck, you've seen them all. 
That's true, right? Plus, uh, Scotty Scotty helped develop this uh, this actual uh, uh, the Excelsior class anyway, so he probably could have told them more about it than they knew. Well, he was trying to tell them more stuff about it, but uh, then he accidentally took the transporters offline. He, he was just walking <laughs> through the hallway, and they just came offline. <laughs> I'll fix it later. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so Cameron, I mean Captain Harriman. <laughs> starts talking to the reporters about just where they're at and how they're going to swing back around and just do a, a nice little pleasure cruise around the solar system. Okay, we are just going beyond Jupiter. That, that's our plan here, everyone. We are just going beyond Jupiter. <laughs> uh, they sweep across the bridge again, and we see the comms officer, who is played by Thomas Capacci, hey. who is in TNG, DS9, Voyager, and Generations. That dude, it, he's got... Um, five appearances or five different characters that he appeared as uh he is the third most uh or has done the third most appearances on star trek oh is that right yeah yeah he's he's pretty up there and then right next to him is a science officer who is a terminator so you gotta be careful um (laughs) she is uh jeanette goldstein who played john connor's stepmom in terminator 2 uh and she also turned into a terminator once well the terminator killed her and then became her that's eh, a whole thing um <laughs> but she also was uh private vasquez in aliens which awesome that's yes and crazy crazy how things go all the way around in a big fat circle in 2019 she did two short tracks and she is the voice of the the enterprise computer. Ah, I'll have to go back and look at that again. I saw something on IMDb that claimed that she was also one of the finalists for the Tasha Yar part when uh, Next Generation was first coming about. Man, that would have been a different mo- or a different show. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Although she might have been a likable character then. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not a Yar fan. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm neutral on Yar. I don't think we saw, I don't think we had enough of Yar to really, to make an evaluation. I, I do true. wonder, I do wonder how Worf would have developed if Yar had not died. I wonder how they would have developed his character because his character became so synonymous with security and, and tactical that, uh, I wonder how they would have, uh, how they would Ooh, have handled an him interesting and how he would have developed him. He would have just left and gone back to the empire a long time ago. <laughs> Complained about some racism. Right. To HR. So then there's a distress call. Dun, dun, dun. And of course, because it's Star Trek, you're the only ship in the area. We are going around Jupiter and there are no other ships in the area. Once uh, again. Star Trek day. (laughs) Star Trek day. That's what it is. Maybe we we did just watch uh, um, the man trap. So maybe it's Thanksgiving. (laughs) Oh, wait, no, that was Charlie X. Sorry. Charlie X has Thanksgiving. Charlie, Charlie X has Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> it seems odd because watching Lower Decks, it seems like there's just ships all over the place when you watch Lower Decks. When you watch when you watch something that has the Enterprise in it, no. The Enterprise is always the only ship in the area. Right? Well, and, you know, if the Borg attack, we can bring the entire armada, the entire fleet even, <laughs> all at once, can all show up in one location. And within seconds. But... If there's a distress call, hey, has anybody heard where the Enterprise is at? We're going to need the Enterprise. Um, if if their crew is on a Klingon ship, we can use that too. That's fine. 
So this is actually, now that I think about it, as far as in the movies, this is a trope that pretty much ends with this movie. In the movies after this, there will actually be a reason why the Enterprise goes where it's going, as opposed to, you're the only ship there. Um, so I think this is the last time we're going to see that particular trope play it out. So what you're saying is that that's Shatner's fault? <laughs> <laughs> in a roundabout Sorry. way, everything right? is Shatner's fault. <laughs> there we go. So they notice... An energy ribbon. An energy ribbon. Now, that's a weird thing to call anything. <laughs> because they had to give it some sort of name other than Captain Scanners are showing the phenomenon to be some sort of plot device. And we can name it the thing that is not time travel because we're not allowed to do that. We totally yeah. swear it's not time travel. <laughs> Captain Harriman. He starts a whole new set of flop sweat. <laughs> he, he looks like the Ferrari just fell off the back of the building. Um, and then we start the joke of, uh, you know, let's use the tractory. Well, it won't be installed until Tuesday. Th this is also uh, for our uh, younger listeners. This is all before, also before Amazon Prime. It actually took more than three days to get a lot of things at times. Uh, that's <laughs> a thing. And they had transporters. Uh, <laughs> So I do have to say when he says that like, or that it's not going to be delivered until Tuesday or installed till Tuesday, they should have had Scotty in the background, just with, <laughs> <laughs> like a giant Klingon laugh. Right. I, <laughs> uh, I, I just keep, when I was watching this, I kept imagining that like all the, cause all the news people are like in everyone's face for everything that's going on. <laughs> and there, there's like a camera guy who keeps squatting down in front of people so he can get these up close shots it's very much like watching real life news people. Right. And I just, I picture that like the Federation news network has this scroller going on the live feed. That's like, you know, Harriman says no tractor beam until Tuesday. Kirk questions standards. You know, I just like, <laughs> cause you know, that stuff just gets twisted. And these guys are the most realistic news people we've seen in the entire franchise. I just, oh, I love it. Um, also what I, I, I was watching this and I'm like, there are so many reflections, like, like somebody's watch glinting in the light playing on everybody's face. It wasn't until like, I don't know, maybe a half an hour later, it suddenly dawned on me. Every one of those cameras has a flashlight on it. Yes. <laughs> so when they're filming this, it's so dark in that room that every time somebody swings their head around, there's a flashlight <laughs> playing across the actor's face. Because I am amazed that none of those guys got punched. <laughs> this is a future in which, in which low light cameras will never be developed. That's right. That's, or somehow they led to the downfall of something on earth or some sort of civilization and we can't use them anymore. Yeah. Right. Everybody's eyes are just too sensitive. <laughs> oh, geez. Um, okay. So they're, they're uh, watching in the ribbon as one of the ships that has the, uh, uh, the stress call. And the, these two ships are refugee ships from uh, Karina Elorians, whose planet has just been attacked by the Borg. However, none of this is mentioned, and we won't know anything about the Borg until 70 years later, and I'm not exactly sure why. Yeah. the uh, Well, okay, so this is kind of a problem early on. Um, the On TNG, Guinan is an Elorian. Guinan... Although at that time she only refers to herself as one of the listeners. Um, but their civilization is destroyed by the Borg. That's well-known canon, whatever. We never talk about how they come in contact with the Federation. We never talk about how come 
when they did come in contact with the Federation, they didn't mention, oh, by the way, there is this group you might want to be concerned about called the Borg. Um, and hey. now we're 70 years later and there's an entire uh, <laughs> refugee ship full of these people and not one of them is going to mention, hey, there's some people, robot hybrids who are going to kill everybody. You should probably know. Hey, what happens on Elor stays on Elor. Right? Well, okay. How come the Borg didn't follow the refugee ships? You telling me the Borg don't have enough chase vehicles? Nah, but they do get kind of lazy. That's true. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll catch them on the other side of a, a warp tunnel or something. I don't know. They got anything that we want? Nah. <laughs> I don't know. Put all the stupid ones on that ship. <laughs> That's the part we didn't never know is that Guinan was actually not very smart in her culture. It's, it's, she really played it up because people didn't know about Lurie. It's like, oh no, she's really deep. Yeah, right? She's like, I have no idea what's going on right now. Um, okay, so you did note on the display that the name of the ship is the Robert Fox. Yes, there's two ships, and uh, there's the Cool, which is one that Guinan and Soren are on. But the one that is destroyed is the Robert, the SS Robert Fox, which is named for the ambassador from the original series in the episode "A Taste of Armageddon." So that's just was kind of a cool truck thing from the back. I like he callbacks was, like that. He was the ambassador who was really trying to be ambassador until they tried to kill him, and then he was more than happy to pick up a gun. <laughs> it's uh, realism to it right <laughs> and then we get back to okay so they've blown up Harriman doesn't know what to do so of course what do we do help me Captain Kirk you're our only hope okay Harriman sucks I just gotta say like how did this guy get to be captain of the flagship of the Federation he as soon as he comes across a situation He's like, I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> like, okay, you took the Kubayashi, right? Like, you should know that there is a, a, a something that has to be done one way or the other. So on an article on Trek Movie, they said um, something that was cut out the original script is it was supposed to explain Herman was there basically just as a ceremonial thing they were just doing it for a media thing he was not actually going to be the captain of the ship he was just being the captain while they were taking the press thing of showing the new enterprise off and he was getting his name out there because he was not really an explorer captain he was more of a political captain oh uh, so but, he was like you know somebody's attache yes rose to the rank of captain uh, i like uh, that so that was that was something that supposedly was supposed to be explained, but they were just like, it's too much on a character that it really isn't that important. So let's just kind of move on. Yeah. And, now, and I thought Alan Ruck was able to uh, was was able to convey uh, the captain's uh, <laughs> complete inability to act rather well, actually. After uh, just watching all of Succession, I can tell you that Alan Ruck as the ineffectual captain. Oh yeah, that's some good that's some good <laughs> casting right there. <laughs> Um, Kirk shouts to turn that damn thing off at the, uh, cameraman, because as soon as he gets asked for help, he's like, I got this. Everybody <laughs> out of my face. And I, I just picture people the, what to do. You know, that new little news scroller was like, Kirk silences media. <laughs> <laughs> and so why, and why did he cancel John Harriman? 
<laughs> so they start deciding now's a good time after half the people are dead. Let's go ahead and start trying to transport now. <laughs> yeah, I was a little confused by this, that even at this point when the second ship is bobbing around and they say, oh, it's going to blow up. Okay, beam everyone out. What? Why wasn't that the very first order to begin with? Beam everyone <laughs> out. Um, I think you've hey. got your priorities a little messed up, but you know. There is a silver lining to this. Apparently during retirement, Scotty sat down and figured out how to use transporters. And he finally had somebody survive being transported. Congratulations, Scotty. So I'm going to guess that this is the first ship that we see that has the helm on the right side and ops on the left left side. And ops is replacing what used to be navigation because everything Scotty's doing, that's wouldn't be at a navigation board and Demora is sitting on the other side. She's the helmsman. So this is, I think the first time we see the, the switch over where they switch places for the two main uh, stations. Hmm. That's a good point. Not that it's important, but I just thought it was interesting. I mean, we're doing a star Trek podcast. (laughs) That's kind of what we do. Um, (laughs) So, uh, we get both, uh, so yeah, we get Caligula and Guinan on the same <laughs> ship at the same time. <laughs> That's the last time I'm going to make that reference. That's the only time I'm going to make that reference. And we're just going to move on. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, <laughs> so all the passengers that have been transported over, they need medical attention. So as we said before, Dr. Chekhov is going to go help them out. <laughs> And we do get to see uh, Professor Corin Wallace and Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm McDowell, (laughs) um, which I thought was a good chance for a baddie. He ultra creepy, really knows how to turn the creep on. Um, He'd worked with uh, Patrick Stewart a number of times uh, on stage, specifically uh, uh, as they were coming up through the ranks of the Shakespeare Company. Um, I mean, the guy can just stand there and look creepy. He's excellent at it. I forgot he's also the maternal uncle of Alexander Siddig who, um, of course, played Dr. Bashir on Deep Space Nine. Um, yeah. Now, I've read two different accounts about him getting this part. I have read that when he was offered it, he said, oh, yeah, I want to be the guy who kills Captain Kirk. And I've also heard that they called him up and said, I'm not interested in what it is. I like the paycheck. I'll do it. So don't know which is true. I read a couple articles that were like, he did it for the money. And then as he was doing it, it kind of sunk in that what he was doing. Cause uh, he said publicly that he really was not that much of a fan of star Trek, the old series or the next gen series. So he didn't really know a whole lot about it. So for him to be like, yeah, I want to be the guy who puts the bullet in Kirk's back. Um, I actually kind of believe that because I don't think he understood <laughs> the gravity of what he was saying. I and I do remember seeing um, Ted Danson one time uh, talk about the fact that uh, he's married to Mary Steenburgen, who previous husband is Malcolm McDowell, and they're supposedly on very good terms. And he mentioned that Malcolm really um, Ted Danson is a huge Star Trek fan, and he said that Malcolm really never missed a point of reminding Ted exactly who bested Captain Kirk, and it really kind of bugged Ted from time to time. Would you say that Malcolm said that time after time? <laughs> um, <laughs> now, the, it is kind of interesting that you brought that up because uh, Ted Danson, being such a huge Star Trek fan, 
it's kind of neat that he finally got to be on the Orville at least. I mean, he oh, didn't really right? get to do his Star Trek stuff, but he got to be on the Orville. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's an admiral on the Orville. Well, I gotcha. Yeah. And then, of course, we as we mentioned, Guinan was on the Enterprise B. She never mentions this to anybody else. But then she also never brought up meeting Mark Twain before they found out that happened and mm-hmm. didn't talk about hosting a daytime TV show in the later 19th or 20th century. And she specifically never mentioned being in the movie Theodore Rex. I mean, um, which, I wouldn't. Yeah. I who can really blame her. I, I really, I really would love to see a, a, just a scene of Tom Paris watching Theodore Rex and saying, I know that woman. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I, I will say this is the one character where uh, Canon being all screwed up. I'm okay with because Guinan has repeatedly talked about the fact that her species sees a lot because of their long life. They are involved in a lot of really weird civilization impacting events and they listen and don't talk about it. Now, when we get to the scene where she starts describing the Nexus, remind me, because there was something new I read that I uh, want to share with you on that, that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, so, uh, James Doohan is going to be the one who starts trying to talk through what's going on here and how they can fix it. And honestly, I mean, Jimmy Doohan was usually one of the best when it comes to goofy tech talk. I mean, it was a large part of his career, but in this scene, it literally looks like he's sounds like he is reading it off of a pad and he doesn't even believe it. I mean, the well, whole, uh, let's use the, you know, if we, I don't know charge the deflector and then push this and maybe that will work. And it, it's almost as if you could almost hear a YouTube video at the bottom. It's like, Hey everybody, this is Chad. I'm going to show you how to distort a ground draft winter distortion with your deflector beat. You know, so <laughs> it, it just really, he, this was one time where I was just like, I, I have, that's not going to work. Cause Scotty doesn't even believe it. I honestly, I think it's got a combination of uh, not great dentures and reading Nimoy's lines, <laughs> honestly. Very good point. At one point, I expected him to be like, um, and then stay seated for 13 more seconds, then rise and approach captain's chair. I mean, <laughs> no, um, it was it was pretty bad. He, you're right. It sounded like he was just reading off the panel. It was terrible. <laughs> and then Captain Harriman says, you know what? I'll go take care of that modification to the tractor beam. That's going to save us all. And Kirk's, Kirk's jumps like, did you say save, save us all? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he was going to sit down, but it's like, wait a second. Somebody else is going to get credit for saving us. That's <laughs> just not going to happen. <laughs> I also I'm do sorry. like this, that Kirk, had, when they ask Kirk for some help, Scotty just jumps into the op seat and start pushes a guy out of the way and starts taking over ops. It's like the guy's as big a control freak as Jim Kirk is. It's just like you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Scotty's gonna help on the bridge because you saw him in Star Trek Four. You saw how fast <laughs> that guy can type. That's just crazy. <laughs> so yeah, Kirk is- gets down to this okay so i i couldn't not find any corroborating evidence for this but the way that kirk comes into the room and starts doing the it's it's basically a modification of having to walk through the chompers right he was yes <laughs> he, he he's kind of worming his way through a whole bunch of like 
uh, railings and stuff. I mean, things have broken and fallen over, whatever. I'm convinced this was the Enterprise D's uh, engineering room with a bunch of other crap shoved in there. The I would say you're probably right. I was trying when I was looking at. I was trying to tell if it was the engineering room or if it was a set from Deep Space Nine. And I think, I think you're right. I think it is the engineering room with the the grates. Yeah, and at one point it looked like the floor was made of glass, but had stuff underneath it. Yes, yeah. And I was like, I'm pretty sure this is engineering. Um, then he uses one of the oddest machines I have ever seen on this show or movies or whatever. He he climbs down, pushes a button, <laughs> pulls out a box. That box then goes back up to the level that he was just on, and he has to climb back up the stairs to access the interface on top of the box. And Who here's the hell designed something like that. <laughs> here's the thing. I'll be honest with you, it's it's hilarious, but this is actually one of my favorite sequences in the movie because you have absolutely no idea what he's doing. But the combination of the music and the editing, you do feel the uh, urgency behind what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the fact that you have no idea how you're going to be able to tell if he did it right or not until he says, I did it right. You know? Um, well, I mean, how many times did we watch data sit on the floor with a bunch of isolinear chips and you know, all he's doing is taking a bunch of transparent pieces of plastic <laughs> and moving them from one hole to another hole. Like, come on, we we're, we're kind of used to this, but the music tells us it's amazing. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the way this was shot, I just, I was really, really impressed. This is one of those scenes that I often think about when I see in other movie, any action movie where they're doing something and they're just, it, Oh, well specifically star Trek five. I think about this scene when star Trek five were going through the great barrier. Mm-hmm. Okay. There was something that obviously we're trying to do. We're trying to get through a great barrier and it is one of the most boring scenes you'll oh, yeah. ever see. This scene, you have no idea what he's doing. And yet yep. the combination of the music, the editing, the shooting, it adds a uh, a level of suspense and excitement to the whole thing. I, I really, David Carson, I have to say, this sequence was really well done. Now, one of the things that I did notice about this that I thought was kind of weird is when Shatner is doing his scene, they are clearly shaking the set. Like he's trying to hold on. He's losing his grip. It, it, like it's it's pretty obvious that the scene is shaking. Yes. Then they flash cut over to the bridge where it is extremely clear. They're shaking the camera. (laughs) 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 It was so bizarre, (laughs) especially because I know in the back of my mind that eventually they did put sets on uh, rigging so that the, the actual set would work. Yeah. Right. I, I know that they started doing that in star Trek. Clearly they didn't do it with, this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they call out that they need the main deflector to be modified. And then Kirk saves the day by pulling out this thing, putting it in the other thing, taking the other thing out and shoving it over into that thing. Right. Which apparently turns on the deflector. <laughs> I, and can we just say the deflector the deflector, as as you point out, mind melds in the original series. <laughs> the deflector in Next Generation has become the Swiss Army knife. It's true. I love that on the original series, that was a radar dish or a, a radio <laughs> yes, dish, right? Yes. And now it is the deflector array that controls everything. 
It's the biggest piece of machinery on the entire ship. It takes the most power. It does the whole thing. But after Best of Both Worlds, man, they just decided, you know, anytime we get in trouble, I don't know, do something to the deflector. Which makes no sense because in Best of Both Worlds, they use the deflector to shoot the Borg. And it didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) You think after after your initial try just goes belly up, you might think, well, maybe that's not the way we should go. But no. It's going to happen. Do you think, do you think yeah. there's always that one writer in the room who everybody's like, oh, we'll use the deflector. And he's like, it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. The deflector. That'll go well. Right. <laughs> All right. So now the ribbon hits the Enterprise, which and, is not a very scary thing to say. And we really illustrate that there are no seatbelts on the ribs. It's going to be one of two times in this movie. They really hammer home the point. There are no seatbelts on the bridge. Amen. I did find some interesting trivia, though. (laughs) Just minor, minor trivia. The effects supervisor, John Noel, um, really wanted the uh, the ribbon strike to be pretty spectacular. And they overlaid a number of different different special effects shots. And one of the shots was actually a recycled explosion from Empire Strikes Back. So no kidding. That's weird. So, you know, it's nice to have yeah. good neighbors, you know? Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's the ILM guys, right? They like to spread it around. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, oh yes. <laughs> okay. So the thing hits, we we're safe. We're out. And then Sulu starts reading off the damage report. Again, I'm not trying to be a super nerd here, but why is the helmsman reading off the damage report? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think maybe uh, she was reading off, again, Sulu's lines because Sulu was going to get paid a certain amount of money to say a certain number of lines. Good point. Good point. Right? And so she just had to keep on doing it. I don't know. The, <laughs> the damage is pretty severe when it hit. Um, they they were completely rocked. And the damage report says that there are, in fact, holes in this ship. Never a good thing. Right? Whether it's so water or space, you don't want holes in your ship. So we get a sweeping exterior shot, um, which you wrote in here, which is I, I, also true. It's very cool to it's actually a, get to see, like, that's where the damage is at. Yeah, yeah, and see, but as as you pointed out, yeah, scale is really off on this thing. Right, they show people standing in the hole from the outside, and they're like 40, 50 feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what was interesting about this scene is like, so there's a hole in the bottom of the ship, and that's where Kirk was. So they're like, Kirk's dead. And the people who are there to find out Kirk is dead are Scotty and Chekhov and Captain Harriman. Why is Chekhov there? He's being doctor. If he doesn't, <laughs> and he shows up and he's like, what happened? If you don't know what happened, why the heck are you here, dude? Oh, uh, you're, uh, you're supposed to be doing something else. Scotty does uh, uh, tell them to tell Chekhov to meet me on deck 15. Oh, did he? All right. Yeah, all right. Fine. The I'll back down then. You got me this time, continuity. Uh, right. the, uh, and I guess there's di- uh, two different edits of this as well, because there is a longer edit that uh, focuses on uh, on Chekhov's reaction quite more and makes it really clear that he, when he realizes what's happened, um, and he, t- he talked about the fact that uh, he really liked the scene. Uh, he had lost his brother not long before then and, uh, and it kind of channeled that for the scene. Does Chekhov scream? I wish. Because... You know, we need that, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of seemed like you guys started this and you you started a running gag and you just didn't stick with it, you know? I right. Mean, 
Chekhov should scream in every movie in one way or another. Telling you, I need that super cut. <laughs> all right. All of a sudden, 78 years later, rocked. we are transported 78 years into the future and we're out in the middle of the ocean. Super weird. How could that be possible? <laughs> we zoom in on a, uh, I forget what kind of ship it is. Um, uh, I believe it's, it's a, schooner. a schooner. It's not a schooner. Oh, it's I, a sloop. Is it a sloop? Might be a sloop. Anyway, it's a relatively small ship, actually. Uh, but on the back of it, it says Enterprise. Enterprise. Which I had a little bit of a problem with because it's referred to as the USS Enterprise. It really should have been the HMS Enterprise, but whatever. Oh, wait. Is is that right? Is Was the was the, uh, the sailing ship Enterprise a British mm-hmm. ship? Uh, no, it was not. But this ship was painted up as a British ship. Oh, I got you. I got you. I got you. Anyway. So they zoom in on the enterprise where Worf is being uh, summarily uh, uh, told his, his charges <laughs> and he is in, he's in chains and uh, everybody is in very fancy military attire from the 1700s out on the ocean. I, I, I thought, I thought we could have added a little bit of authenticity to this. Just have a, you know, Dr. Crusher just start beating on a random non, uh, non-player character on the side. you know, just Right. <laughs> Get out of my face. Yeah. And dressing would have been her. <laughs> then dressing Worf up in a costume. I couldn't help but think the look on his face, like, you know, c- couldn't you guys just, you know, kick the crap out of me like they do in the, in the uh, Klingon Navy? You know, do I right? really, do we really have to do the uh, role play on this? Uh, listen, does anybody have a pain stick? I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> Let's just do that. No, they, so they announced that he's going to get a promotion, which is really cool. You know, he's, he's now Lieutenant commander, uh, which, uh, okay, cool. That's, that's awesome. Long and then they make him, walk the plank because uh the tradition is that he has to walk the plank and jump up off the plank to grab his new hat what sort of tradition is this um i can tell you what sort of tradition the crew of the enterprise d are a bunch of big jerks because <laughs> this is a really crappy hazing ritual oh well, we're all gonna stand around and laugh at you while you reach around in the sky trying to grab your hat Ooh. <laughs> But Worf, he's a Klingon. They've never done this to a Klingon before. So what does he do? He jumps straight up, grabs that hat, and looks around like, yeah, that's right. I caught the hat. <laughs> and what do we do? We find out that the Enterprise crew really is that big a jerk. <laughs> Riker goes, computer, remove the plank. That's some crap right there. And then Picard is all, I think you meant. Uh, retract the plank, and he's like, "Oh, ha, 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 ee, ee, ee. <laughs> rank hath is hath privileges." <laughs> oh, I'm telling you that if this was a Klingon ship, Worf would have jumped out of that water, torn Riker <laughs> in half, and assumed his rightful role as number one. <laughs> I, I will say this: this actually makes much more sense in the light of uh, the first episode of the second season of Lower Decks when you see what kind of captain uh, Riker turns out to be. Right? <laughs> no, it's it's funny because on, on Lower Decks, the number one on that show, uh, he, he is totally the the uh, caricature of this Riker. And it makes me so happy. <laughs> so they they say flat out that no one's ever caught the hat and that and they think it's really, really funny that they're sending him out there to do that. Like we've made this impossible on purpose so that we can humiliate you. Congratulations. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's the 1990s. You're being hazed. <laughs> this is this is what Starfleet's all about, baby. Oh God. <laughs> Good thing they didn't have duct tape. Anyway. But this leads us to just an ever returning point in the story of Star Trek the Next Generation. Hey, can I stop you here? Yes. I got a question for you. Yeah. Did you know Data's not human? <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that would explain a lot. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to have to go back and watch seven seasons worth of because, man, I totally missed <laughs> I thought he was just a terrible actor. <laughs> And I thought, why is he doing that 1800s uh, white white powdered face thing? It just it makes no sense. Wow. Yeah. You know what? Whole se- the whole series just oh. finally came together right there for me. Thank that you. Makes so much more sense. <laughs> Man, his twin brother was such a jerk. <laughs> so okay, yes, Peter doesn't get the joke of why Worf is in the water. It is really bad. Oh my god! And and here's but, the sad thing: it's like we're gonna go all through this for very very little. There's gonna be a long walk for a very little reward on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, they they do. They just they beat it to death. And I mean, it's been seven seasons. We get it. He's Pinocchio. Okay, but maybe just tone it down a little. <laughs> This is one of those things we couldn't have done this in the year that we weren't, you know, we couldn't have said, hey, we finally put the chip in him and everything. We had to do this in the movie because mm-hmm. this is like the most unmovie part of the movie. Well, yeah. So, well, we'll we'll get to that a little bit later. But I mean, they this B story feels more like an episode of TNG than anything else going on. Yes. Yes. But not like you said, not a movie. Um. <clears throat> so Riker stands up and starts talking about damsel or <laughs> damsels and corsets and crap. And he, you know, he's got his big stupid smirk on his face while he's talking about what everybody's doing. And Picard's like, Hey, come over here. And all I can think is he's like, you know, you really can't say that uh, HR's <laughs> all over you. That's not okay. No, but instead he's like, Hey, Sailing's great, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's great if you're the guy in charge. (laughs) You see that guy over there pulling a rope? Doesn't he just have the life? Oh my gosh. And the great thing is, if he doesn't do it right, I can beat him. Right? (laughs) Man, this was the life, Will. It's just ridiculous. And so now we're going to get, we get the arch news. I kept waiting for Moriarty to jump out and be like, Arch. <laughs> um, but he didn't. There's Moriarty never before. shows up when you want him to. <laughs> um, and after the arch comes up, Picard gets a little message and he's just gobsmacked. Something bad's uh, happened. Now, Troy sees this from across the ship. She notices, you know, Jean-Luc looks like he's in a bad mood. I'm going to go talk to him. So she says, hey, you over there, come come grab this wheel. And when she hands over the wheel, the guy she hands it over to is actually, in real life, the captain of this ship. The ship is actually the Lady Washington. Yes. that is a stand-in for the Enterprise. Uh, the Lady Washington is also a stand-in for the Interceptor in Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, um, uh, which is why it looks exactly the same. 
also probably why it's painted up as an English ship. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I thought that was kind of cool that, you know, this guy who actually captains the ship in real life got to be on camera for this. Uh, yeah. That was pretty neat. Anyway, so then we fade to black and head over to the Amagosa. And so just a quick note, we pulled the ship up and the ship model that we're using for the Enterprise D is actually had to be pulled out of uh, storage is actually the original six foot model that splits in two that was used for encounter at far, at far point and it had to be retouched and, uh, and uh, re put together to use it for more because they needed basically the larger murder, uh, model for the film aspect. Makes of sense. It. Well, and if you think about it, that's going to be a lot of retouching. Cause I'm pretty sure the first one had like, it was like purpley and this one is much more, you know, gunmetal gray. Yeah. The, the actual original paint job on the, uh, that they originally put out was a blue green, but they said it, they never could get it to really work on camera. Yeah. That gray that they used in season one, it always had a purple cast to it, which was super weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, Everybody, so, everybody heads to the bridge dressed in their finest. They're still, okay. So there's still, there's a red alert because something bad's happened. Everyone runs out and goes to the bridge and they're still in their, in their English uh, uh, sailing outfits. And I love because the random helmsman in this scene looks like he is trying everything that she can do not to stare at the senior officers in their right. outfits. It's like, I don't want to ask what kind of party you were at. I, I don't want, you know what? Don't, I just don't want to know. Is this one of those <laughs> hazing things again? Ugh. God, you guys always do this. You people are so weird. <laughs> well, okay. So Lower Decks did a, a takeoff on this, which I thought was, I, 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 it was one of those throwaway scenes where I'm laughing so hard. I had to rewind like three <laughs> times because I just kept losing it. But there's a red alert and it's during this time when they're, they're on a long uh, section of nothing going on traveling through space. So everybody's on the holodeck. And so when the red alert happens, all these people mob onto the bridge <laughs> and they're dressed in like, they're dressed in armor from like uh, medieval knife uh, <laughs> fights. They're dressed in um, uh, those outfit, the, the armor outfits with the pugil sticks with the blades on them. Um, they're dressed as 18th century milkmaids, like just all kinds of crazy random stuff. And they all show up and have to have to run their mission like that. It's fantastic. <laughs> all right, folks, we talked way too long again. So we're going to have to continue this next time on Star Trek Generations Part 2. Also, I'd like to take a moment to thank our friends over at Five Year Mission for the use of their song Beam Down as our intro and outro. Uh, please head on over to their website at fiveyearmission.net and check them out. They've got a song for every episode of TOS grouped into an album for every season. It's really cool. In the meantime, we'll talk to you then. Started 832, 2016.